This Slate spoiler special is meant to be played after you see the movie being discussed. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on The Clouds of Sils Maria, the new Olivier Assayas movie. So, what you were saying earlier was that, and like Joanne, I don't take that kind of role seriously. Hmm? What? No. I don't know what you're talking about. But I have disdain for those characters and their cartoonish psychology, but she doesn't. Mm. She makes her superior to me. Uh-oh. Don't get jealous. Not an attractive quality. Joining me in the Slate studio is Matt Priget, who is the film critic for Metro. Hey, Matt, how are you? Hi, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, gr- glad to have you in on this one. You wanted to come in on this one. I actually put out a <laughs> shout out on Twitter and said, critics who have seen Clouds of Sils Maria, come spoil it with me. And somehow I couldn't find anyone who had both seen it and was able to come in. And you really wanted to because you have actually uh, interviewed the director, Olivier Assayas. I have. I embarrassed myself in front of him. He's actually one of my favorite filmmakers in the world. I wouldn't say maybe my absolute favorite, but really close to it. And I did ask him a bunch of very stupid questions. Really? The I guess they got cut out because the interview seemed perfectly sense-making to me. <laughs> I know, I know. He did a good job of actually responding intelligently to my questions. So, Well, it seemed like a lot of what the two of you talked about, and we'll get into this in the, in the spoiler, I'm sure, is uh, Juliette Binoche and his relationship with her. She stars in this movie. She's only been, I guess, in one of his other movies in Summer Hours, his second-to-last movie before this. Uh, he made about like, four or five movies ago. 2008 is oh, when man, it came the out. guy's so prolific. He's... I can't keep up with his output. He made a five-hour movie about Carlos the Jackal in between. So. Right, which I confess that I've only seen the first first half of. I love that car- <laughs> that first half of Carlos, but that is a lot of movie. I still have the second disc to watch. Um, but to me, Asayas is at his most interesting when he's working with Binoche, and I hope this is the, the sign that they'll do more things together. I love that role that she plays in Summer Hours that I think kind of makes the movie. It's a very atypical Juliette Binoche role in a way. I mean, for so long, she was this beautiful young woman who played ingenues, and you just always knew that she was going to sort of be a nice lost person and, you know, to see her play a not very nice lost person, you know, as she as she has in these two movies that she's done with him is a great direction for her, I think. Yeah, it was interesting because he was actually one of the people who helped create her back in 1985. He co-wrote Rendezvous, which was an Andre Techenet film that he wrote with him. That was her big breakthrough, right? Yeah. It wasn't her first movie, but... I don't think it was her first movie and I've also, I have to admit, I've never seen it. Um, but apparently it's very good and it's, it's also similar to this because she's playing an actress in that one as well. Uh, an actress who's very kind of volatile, has a lot of uh, kind of volcanic emotions, which she has in this one as well. Um, but yeah, she's someone who, you know, he helped kind of create her. And then when he worked with her in Summer Hours, she kind of complained that she was just part of the ensemble and she didn't get to kind of get the one-on-one relationship that she had with him, uh, you know, or she would have had it with him if he had directed Rendezvous. So. Yeah, and this is a much more intimate movie than Summer Hours because it really, as we'll get into, is sort of a two-character chamber piece. Okay, so, but we usually start off with kind of a general emotional temperature reading here. As a big Asayas fan, how do you think this stacks up and did you love Clouds of Sils Maria? I didn't love it, but I really, really like it. I would say it's probably like second, maybe third tier, which is still really good, I think, for him. Um, you know, it's not as good as, I would say, his best film is this film called Arm of Vap, which he made in 1996, which is uh, a movie about movie making, starring... That was his first movie, right? No, no, no. That was like his probably fourth or fifth movie. Oh, my God. I know. He's been directing since, I think, like the late 80s. I guess Arm of Vap was more just like his U.S. breakthrough. That was certainly when I first heard of him. That was, yeah. I think his like kind of artistic breakthrough was this film called Cold Water, which he had made in 1994, I want to say, which is even now 
now not available in America. It shows on IFC every now and then. Uh, but Armavep was his international breakthrough, and it's a really also just a, a great international film because it's you know it's largely in English because it's uh, about Maggie Chung playing Maggie Chung as a Hong Kong actress coming to France to make a remake of uh, the French serial film Les Vampires. Right, and, the old Foyad series. But we you know what's strange is I'm just realizing that is basically identical to the plot structure of the Clouds of Sils Maria. Yeah. Right. I mean, an, an actress playing an actress who is coming to remake you know something something old and beloved. And in the case of Clouds of Sils Maria, though, it's a, it's her own work. Right. It's the it's sort of the play that got Juliette Binoche's character launched that she's coming back to do again. Oh, but wait, I didn't do my emotional temperature reading oh, yeah. on the movie yet. And then we'll get into spoilage. Um, I would say I found that this is maybe one of my favorite SAS movies I've ever seen. But unlike you, I'm not a huge fan and knower of his whole of. And in general, I find him maybe a little bit too almost technically perfect and polished of a filmmaker, like Summer Hours, for example. No one could dispute that Summer Hours is brilliantly done, right? It explores its themes beautifully. The acting is great. It looks fantastic. But there's something about its surface that was a little bit too unruffled or thesis-driven hmm. for me, except for, for the Binoche character. She is what stood out and sort of gave it this ragged edge that I that I liked. And that's, I think, what I like better about this movie, is that it's all ragged edges, right? <laughs> okay, so let's get into Clouds of Sils Maria spoilage and just sort of describe the general set up here. Juliette Binoche plays Maria Enders. I love that name because this movie is kind of all about aging and, you know, ends and beginnings and doing something over again, right? So Maria Enders, we meet on this, and she's famous. She's an international superstar who seems in a way to be almost like a bigger star than Juliette Binoche. She seems like Catherine Deneuve level or something like yeah, that. Yeah, she's like in an X-Men movie, and like Juliette Binoche gets a cameo in Godzilla. Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> Right, yeah, she's someone that you basically picture in the international jet set or something like that. But we first meet her on this train in Europe, traveling with her assistant, sort of a personal assistant who travels with her, named Valentine, um, played by Kristen Stewart. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, okay, you, you take it from there. What do they learn on the train and what, what happens thereafter? She's going to some kind of ceremony for like a kind of like a Lifetime Achievement Award for a playwright who wrote the play that became her first big hit. Um, and... He dies on the way there. They find out over, you know, they're using their cell phones and they find out in the moment that he's died. And so uh, she kind of agrees around that time to be in a revival of the same play that she was in when she was a younger woman, only playing the older woman in the play. And the play is a sort of like fast bendery and, you know, it's very kind of like bitter tears of Petra von Kant about an older woman seducing a younger woman and the younger woman destroys the older woman's heart and, and... reminds her of her own kind of like decay and ephemerality and so forth. And And it it also obviously has a very all about Eve. That is never explicitly brought up or referenced, but, you know, there's a very all about Eve structure, both in in Juliette Binoche's relationship to the Chloe Grace Moretz character, who we'll get to, and uh, and in her relationship to to Kristen Stewart, right? And there's always Mm -hmm. that question of, are people seeking to undermine her or not? But the all about Eve factor is actually mostly in her head. Chloe Grace Moretz's character, who doesn't really kind of pop up until the last half hour, is really not trying to undermine her in any kind of way. In fact, she's a huge fan of hers. I don't think you understand how much of an honor this is for me. When I was 15, I saw, um, oh my God, the movie you did with, with the CIA and Harrison Ford. I'm so sorry, I'm blanking. Um, Beetle on its back. A Beetle on its back with Harrison Ford. You blew my mind. <laughs> you, you... You were the epitome of class. You were everything I ever wanted to be as an actress. And I mean, the way that you battled those politicians and then the military brass men, it was, it was captivating. It was my first Hollywood film. I was a little lost. Um, Sidney Pollack was really nice, but sometimes I didn't understand what I was saying, so I was too shy to ask. But fortunately, Harrison was there to help. <laughs> a lot. 
Let's talk also a little bit about the region they're going to, because regionality and place is important in a lot of his films, right? Summer Hours is basically about a house and a state and what is the future of this of this of this place, mm-hmm. and uh, and the Clouds of Sils Maria is about a place and about a specific meteorological phenomenon that happens in that place. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of his films actually take place in cities, and this one is very kind of pointedly. I mean, the, the bulk of it and the middle section of it is all in the Swiss Alps in this kind of like remote little house that, that they just sort of like hole up in and they run through the play and they joke around and they talk and every now and then they kind of leave and kind of go to like a small city, but they mostly stay in this like beautiful region. And, you know, a lot of his films are about the bustle and hustle of the city and, you know, moving around a lot, but this is very much like, the camera is placed down and you're staring at these beautiful sights. And the main thing is this thing um, that in Sils Maria is this like thing called the cloud snake. Um, where it's just this big the clouds that kind of like go through this like sneaky little Milton Pass. Yeah, there's basically beautiful... a valley, right? There's yeah. a valley, and from time to time, the cloud conditions converge in such a way that there's this like a snake of clouds that moves down it. Mm-hmm. And you know the the way that this was built up in the movie, and then we eventually get to see it happen, really, really made me think of Eric Romer, who I'm sure Olivier Assayas has to consider an influence, right? I mean, there can't be an intimate French filmmaker who doesn't consider <laughs> Romer some kind of influence. And uh, and it just reminded me of the Green Ray, the wonderful Eric Romer film that's mm. also all about this rare weather phenomenon and whether the heroine is going to get to see it or not. Yeah, I didn't think about that, but yeah, I know, definitely. And his films are very much about, I mean, they're very dialogue-driven for one thing, and they're very much about like the, the specifics of uh, personality and neuroses and about kind of following those kind of things. And you really see that in this film. Um, just like in a lot of Eric Romer films. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that central relationship between Valentine and uh, and Maria is is the thing that I, I want to get into. I mean, eventually, like you say, we do get to the question of the actual younger actress who's sort of all about eving, um, <laughs> Juliette Binoche, played by Chloe Grace Moretz. But she doesn't get into the picture until, I would say, about two-thirds or more of the way through the movie. Yeah. And really, a lot of time is just spent in hotel rooms and wandering around mountain passes with this woman and her assistant. And to me, their relationship was so powerful and kind of enigmatic. I wanted to just explore like what it was about the kind of electric connection that the two of them have. There's, there is an attraction there, definitely, and maybe some sense of a possible seduction, but there's lo- there's also this kind of playfulness or mother-daughter vibe. Anyway, I just wanted to hear what what you thought about that relationship. Oh, no, I mean, it's, it's very kind of like fraternal. I think like one thing that they have, they're, they're working through this play, which is about these like two women lovers, but like, and they're sort of contrasting that, but they're really different from that. They really do get along, and they have like a really kind of strong rapport, and a lot of it has to do with just allowing Juliette Binoche and Kristen Stewart um, to just kind of like hang out and relax, and they, they really are. I mean, Kristen Stewart is an actress who isn't always allowed to relax. She has to, you know, pretend that she's in love with a vampire or a werewolf in some big movie. But and this I one, think, but I feel like we have to let Kristen Stewart move beyond Twilight at, by oh, this point. Don't abs- you agree? Oh, absolutely. Like I'm tired of the debate about whether she can act or not. <laughs> Give her some roles, and we'll figure it out. You know, I mean, I'm liking her post Twilight career so far. But then again, I kind of like the Twilight movies too. Oh no, I've only seen one of them, and I thought she was fine with it. I didn't think she was a terrible in the films, and I actually really like the pre-Twilight or even the the films she was making during Twilight, which would make a lot of like independent films and you know people kind of like unfairly would kind of like tie her to this franchise that was not particularly loved critically um, but she's always been a really great actress and I think in this one especially she's really allowed to relax and and chill out and she's really funny and droll and you know it uses this uh, screen persona really well that we have in a way we haven't really seen before what's wrong with my acting nothing <laughs> what do I need to do to make you admire me do I think too much huh Went to classical, not liberated like Joanne. <laughs> You're here to talk to me, so start talking. Hmm? I don't know. You, you, you can't be as accomplished as you are and as well-rounded as an actress as you are and still expect to hold on to the privileges of youth. It just doesn't work like that. 
Oh. So I'm allowed to not be old as long as I don't want to be young. Is that it? Yeah. I don't know. I guess so. Yes. Totally. Well put. Yeah. I mean, it seems like part of what the Juliette Binoche character respects about this assistant she has is she is not subservient, nor is she trying to kind of take over, right? She she actually seems to be very self-contained and to have her own agenda. And in fact, now, as long as we're getting into spoilers, I mean, to me, sort of the great mystery of the movie is the way she disappears. Yeah. And yeah. We, we never quite know why Kristen Stewart or Valentine, her character, leaves the movie. It's just that after this one particular hike in the mountain pass, I think it's the hike on which they see the clouds, mm-hmm. right? Um, she she doesn't come back from the hike. I mean, there's it's almost like a, a La Ventura moment or something like that, where <laughs> Julia Binoche is wandering through the Alps, calling for her and doesn't see her. And my sort of thought was that, you know, well, we're going to find out. Did she run away? Did she quit? And we never know. We then, <laughs> we then cut forward in time. I guess the rehearsal period is over, and we're at the play, and we see the opening night of the play. And... Uh, and I, I, anyway, I wanted to ask you, what, what, why don't you think he brought Kristen Stewart back, even narratively? I think, well, I mean, he does that a lot in his films. Like, he'll have like, an ellipsis and a character will, you know, a lot of times will die. There, there are films, actually, I think there's a film he made really early on in his career, which I've never seen, where I believe the lead character dies in an ellipsis. Like, she walks up somewhere and then it cuts to, like, you know, months later and she's died. Mm-hmm. She's died. Um, so he kind of likes doing that. But I think he's, he's doing it in a lot more kind of playful way. It's not, you know, La Ventura is an unsolvable riddle. Right. Oh, no. I mean, I think yeah. my mind went to La Ventura, but he's doing oh, yeah. something completely other. I mean, I think he was just sort of showing the ephemeral nature of relationships in the entertainment industry, I guess. I yeah. mean, I just missed Kristen Stewart. I wanted her to come back. Well, she, yeah, me too. I mean, because she's a great character and they have a great rapport. But I think he really wants to kind of like strip that away from her. And, and it's, I think it's a much more simple thing that she has been kind of like um, growing kind of like sick of working with Maria. Like Maria has been like, you know, as the film has been going on, like she's getting kind of... She gets at, more demanding, more diva-like. Yeah, right? yeah. And there's a part where she actually confronts her. She's just like, I'm just doing my job. Stop yelling at me. And so I just kind of feel that it was just a kind of symbolic kind of way to show that she has just quit. And and also because, you know, Julie Binoche's character, is she really needs to kind of get rid of having um, this almost like she has this almost parasitic relationship with her personal assistant. Like they're really kind of like she doesn't really ask her a lot. We don't really learn a lot about Valentine, Valentine. Um so, I mean, the, the idea that she actually needs to kind of like go off on her own and have a certain autonomy and, and, and not rely on so much on her personal assistant because she gets a personal assistant in the last third of the film, but she doesn't demand as much as, of her as she does. Like the personal assistant asks if she wants to run lines with her like she would do with Valentine. Well, and it makes it makes very clear that the, the next personal assistant is, you know, while very on the ball and, you know, sort of doing her job properly is not going to have that kind of connection. Yeah. You know, and that maybe... Maybe the Maria Enders character is moving into a life where she will have fewer connections, you know, that her relationships will drop away. Like she doesn't seem to be somebody who's increasing her connection to the world. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about the, the, what this movie has to say about acting, pretending, drama. I mean, it's one of those almost backstage dramas, although it's so far before the rehearsal period that the backstage is just running lines with her assistant. But it still is sort of, you know, a glimpse into the making of a drama. And it seems very interested in those questions. Yeah. I mean, it is in a way as a backstage drama in some ways, but I think it's also a little bit deeper than that. It's also about, I think one thing that's really interesting is that it's about the way that actors really absorb the material and the way that the material kind of poisons them in a lot of ways. Like Maria's really wrestling with playing this character, which she really doesn't want to do and she's sort of like doing it as a favor and she's pretending that she is just a job at the same time it's really kind of psychically affecting her it's a you know it's a, it's a reminding her of her own aging it's also a character that you know is 
kind of on the way out and, you know, is sort of a doormat in a lot of ways. And it's a character that she really doesn't want to deal with. You know, she's talking about she's going through a divorce. It's a really rough time for her. So, um, you know, it's... It's just, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's just a film that really kind of dwells on the way that actors really absorb their parts and the ways that it, it harms them psychologically. Right. Well, and of, of course, also, it's a film about aging because she is now playing the older woman, right, the seducee instead of the seductress that she played when she was a young ingenue. Mm. And uh, and it's also interesting, I think, that Juliette Binoche is not portrayed as a particularly vain. You know, it's not <laughs> all about Evish in the sense that she is sort of. Um, demanding to stay young or resenting her aging, but she she struggles with it. She sort of struggles to figure out, who am I if I'm not the person that I once played in this show? It's almost like an identity crisis happening behind the character. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I, I think it's great that she's not like a Margot Channing person at all. She's not this Helion or something like that, and she's not... You know, right, it's not a campy queeny kind of thing. Right? Yeah, yeah. She never has this like big moment where she like throws things or something like that. It never, she gets kind of like worked up sometimes, but it's always you know it's it's not that terrible. She's actually, I mean, she's I'm probably pretty close to what Julia Binoche is really like in real life in a lot of ways. I mean, I know she's talked about. There's a great interview with uh, David Ehrlich in on the Dissolve between Olivier Essayas and Julia Binoche, where she talks about the one difference is that Julia Binoche does not think that much about the past. She's always kind of in the present. So uh, Maria Enders is someone who's very much kind of like stuck in the past and really, not really stuck in the past, but like anguishes over this. I mean, this is a film, I think, more about anxiety than it is about something kind of like solid, like, you know, an actress, an aging actress who wants to be young again because she's someone who really doesn't want to be young again. She talks about how, you know, she doesn't want to have that kind of a youthful ignorance that she had, you know. Um, she doesn't want to relive her youth. She doesn't want to do certain things. She kind of has the thing that we all get when we get a little older, that there are certain things that we may, maybe would have done reluctantly when we were younger, but we just don't want to do that anymore. Right. And then so. you really see that contrast when Chloe Grace Moretz's character does come in. Um, she finally flies into Switzerland and they meet. And you see that she does come from this different, you know, she comes from this new Hollywood 2.0, kind of <laughs> not not at all um, what Marie Anders came from, that, you know, we see her in a little bit of a maybe superhero sci-fi movie of some kind. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I mean, she's being compared to Lindsay Lohan. I see. I see in reviews of this movie, but I think of her as more of a like a Scarlett Johansson kind of figure or something like that, right? I mean, yeah. she doesn't seem to be a druggy screw up. She seems to be sort of like a, a tabloid queen, but one who's got it together. Yeah, I'm someone who actually compared her to Lindsay Lohan in my review, and then rewatching it last night, I felt kind of embarrassed because I mean, the only thing is she, she's not necessarily a party girl, right? She seems to be like very professional, actually, but also um, you know not the deepest thinker in the world. No, no, but she seems to be like you know, they're talking about how she's this like kind of refreshing person she's not antiseptic the way that a lot of Hollywood actresses are and and she has this like kind of this background this very artistic background with these parents who didn't like movies and acting and things like that they're into classical music and things like that so she isn't just another kind of Lindsay Lohan type you know? but but she but it, when she and Maria meet there is some kind of clash of, of values or paradigms in a way right I mean they, they seem to represent two different worlds the world of art cinema which is literally kind of dying right I mean the movie starts <laughs> off with the announcement that this playwright has died. Yeah. I guess not cinema here, we're talking about the drama, but this this important playwright who gave her her start has died. Um, and that there's there's something new that's coming, right? There's something new that's coming that's a little bit scary and that maybe has to do with technology. You know, there's a lot of um, of technology floating around in this movie and there's a somewhat ambivalent attitude toward it, I, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't think he's actually kind of like taking down like the new Hollywood or technology. I think he's also, he's a filmmaker who's very much about, um, you know, life kind of like moving on, the fact of life moving on, that not being a good or a bad thing. Mm-hmm. It just is. It might have pros or cons. Um, you know, Olivia Essayas is someone who really kind of like adapts to like the world and adapts to the 
changing times, and his characters are always kind of like wrestling with that and like worrying about irrelevance. Uh, Carlos in uh, Carlos the Jackal in the movie Carlos is a character who wants to. He has a moment where he's like kind of you know sort of an it terrorist in a way. That's a terrible way of putting it, but he's someone who's relevant in a certain way. Like what he does is relevant, and then he finds himself as the film goes on becoming no longer relevant. He can't get funding for things anymore. It's oh, I have to watch the second half. Yeah, it's it's great. You just like you just watch the decline of a terrorist. (laughs) Yeah, you just watch him like trying to like you know he he can't get anything off the ground. He's he was never that great of a terrorist to begin with. He never really had a successful uh, terrorist attack before. This sounds so terrible, but in a in a way, it's sort of like a metaphor for the way that people have to adapt to like their changing times, whatever their outlet is, I suppose. So it's just that Maria Anders is someone who kind of has to. Um, except the fact that she is in this new position that she can't do the things that she used to do anymore and she in a way doesn't actually want to do them. So how does she actually adapt to that? How does she kind of continue on? Yeah. Okay. I want to talk about the very, very last scene when you see them on stage together. But first, I just wanted to address um, Chloe Grace Moretz herself. Um, she's a small part in this movie, but she she does it really, really well. And I just have to admit that I've never been a fan of Chloe, Chloe, oh, really? Chloe Grace Moretz. In fact, <laughs> when she's in a movie, I generally have a slight sinking feeling like, oh, great. I don't think she's terrible. I just, I there, there's something about her energy that seems absorptive rather than generative or something. I don't feel like she gives a lot to a movie. But she, I thought she was perfectly cast in this role in a way for that reason. There's something a little bit self-enclosed and self-satisfied about her that yeah. goes very well with this kind of, you know, Hollywood girl that she was playing. I mean, she seems someone who keeps changing. She's very different from each time we see her. She's much more kind of like fawning over Julia Binoche with the first time we see her. And then the second time we see her, you know, she's a little bit more kind of closed off. And then by the end, she's sort of evil in some way. She's really cold. Well, that's the moment I wanted to get to. I mean, it's sort of in a way hard to spoil this movie because it's really <laughs> just about relationships unfolding. And we we already gave away the big thing, which is that Kristen Stewart disappears in the Alps, yeah. but not in a dangerous way. You sort of assume, you know, she went on to her next PR job or whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, but but what does happen in the end is this very cold and clinical. I mean, most of the movie, I think, has been less clinical than SAS can, can be. But that last scene of them on stage together is really hard to take, I thought, because it, because it seems to show such a grim future, I don't know, for, for <laughs> Juliette Binoche's character and just for for art, you know. Yeah. And, and so I just wanted to, to, to talk about that. Because, for example, the Chloe Grace, Grace Moretz character does seem to be enacting the worst fantasies of Maria Enders, which is, you know, that she doesn't matter anymore, her character doesn't matter, she's just playing the old hag, you know, and that it's the pretty young girl on stage who everybody has come there to see. That's essentially what Chloe Grace kind of drops, you know, right before the show was going to start. I mean, it's more than that because Julia Binoche, you know, she takes time to point out that like there's this thing where like her last scene in the in the in the play, you know, she's like Julia Binoche said she gave you know a long look to like the other actress, and whereas Chloe Grace Moretz is just like walking out without even looking. Right, at Right, it's like a stage direction that she yeah. asks for. There's this moment as they're about to go on where she essentially says, you know, that scene where you walk out of the room, can you stop and give me a longing look because I always did it that way. Nope, not going to do it. Yeah, right? it's like this measure of respect that she's not even thinking about giving to her and she says in this very kind of like cold way where it's like no one really cares about you anymore um, you know and compared with like how warmly she treated her when she first met her and just fawning over her and talking about how great she was you know it's it, it's it's someone who you don't really know who she is anymore. She has like so many parts that you right. you can. I mean, between that and the, the the one assistant that she seemed to have a warm and genuine relationship with, abruptly disappearing and being replaced by this cold technocrat. I mean, <laughs> I sort of felt that the end of the movie was pretty pessimistic. I, that, that you essentially walked out of it sort of thinking, well, the new guard has taken over. You know, the 
worst dreams of the old guard have in a way been realized. And it didn't quite seem to fit with the whole tone of the movie, which is sort of about maturing and not just accepting aging, but sort of affirming the wisdom of of aging and learning more, right? Mm. And all all of that optimism, in a way, seemed to be like wadded up in a ball and trashed by the fact that Kristen Stewart disappears and the fact that, you know, that the play seems like maybe it will be a critical success, but it's not going to be a moment of connection between those two actresses. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it doesn't seem like she really had a connection with, like, the other actress herself. Like, when Julia Binoche was younger with the older actress, like, it doesn't seem like they had a huge connection either. But I agree that it actually, it kind of goes a little too far into, like, a darker territory. Um, but I think Julia Binoche underplays it really beautifully. I think that the part when she just sort of nods and you know, almost accepting her fate and that kind of blank look that she has, it, it, you know, there's something kind of like a, her just, by owning it, she's actually going to make it a lot better. And it won't be as bleak for her and she's maybe not as pessimistic about her future. She's like, well, this is where I am right now, and I'm not going to be in the way I was when I was younger. I'm going to be someone who is sort of like pushed off to the side, and I think that's kind of okay. And I think he's, in general, I think, uh, you know, unless I've, SAS is very much about, you know, worlds just happening to change, and it's not really a bad or a good thing. You know, mm-hmm. it's just like, it just is, and it's just a part of life. We're all going to age and decay and at one point die and be forgotten and so forth and other bleak things, but that's just like the way life is, so... <laughs> All right. On that <laughs> to, br- note. <laughs> to bring everything down. Um. <laughs> I mean, maybe before we wrap, we should just talk about Juliette Binoche herself a little bit, because I think to me, she, well, I already said she's what makes my two favorite Olivier Assayas movies work. And there's just something, something, il y a quelque chose about Juliette Binoche, and I want to figure out what it is. I, I think one thing is that she is just so kind of filled with emotions and so kind of like a uh, you know, bearer with her emotions. She's so open to showing her emotions. Um, and she has so much going on underneath and she's so kind of like raw in a lot of ways. And I think, and that hasn't dissipated at all with age and it's become even more rich as she's gotten older and there's more life experience behind her. She's, I think maybe some of her younger roles, I mean, you can definitely sense that, but she is sort of like, you can have a sense of model as well. I think even you know, bearable lightness of being, there's, you know, there's a lot going on there, but you kind of, you don't, it, especially compared with like this film or Flight of the Red Balloon or other films that she's in that I can't remember right now. Well, um, the Kiarostami film, Certified yeah. Copy, I mean, I think is one of her, her great roles ever um, yeah. because she I guess to do it all. If you haven't seen Certified Copy, listeners definitely see it. I think we have an old spoiler special on Certified Copy somewhere, actually. But um, but the great thing about it is that essentially Juliette Binoche sort of moves through different personas and almost almost identities, right, over the course of the film. So you get to see her just binoche it up in every way. Yeah, and she's very kind of like effusive in the beginning and very kind of like, I mean, almost gawky in a way with her emotions and giggling really loudly. And by the end, she's just like very kind of calm and cool. And she does it really gradually, too. It's a really amazing performance. Well, and also has some of those moments like Clouds of Sils Maria of deliberate theatricality, right? Yeah. Because you see moments in, um, in Certified Copy when she's trying to make a certain effect or trying to pretend something or play, you know, play with someone in a certain way. Mm. And so... She's playing on different levels at once. She's trying to get what she wants, and she's trying to get it through an artifice that we are aware of. Yeah, I mean, there's sometimes in Clouds of Silves and Maria where we're not really sure if she's doing the play or if she's, like, talking in real life, you know. So they just keep jumping in and out of that really kind of smoothly and playfully. I mean, this is also, I should point out, this is a very playful film. I don't feel it's a really, like, insistent film. It's not um, even trying to say anything specific. It's just kind of playing with... with all these ideas. There's a lot of meta references in this film, you know, to Kristen Stewart's character. It keeps referencing celebrity culture and things like that. Um, but they're not men in, in this like kind of like over like heavy handed way. It's men in this kind of. Playful. It's not sort of wink, wink. She was in Twilight, right? But yeah. we are aware at all times that you know they are people with histories in the entertainment industry, as is Chloe, Chloe Grace. Yeah, yeah. And then tying it back to Julia Binoche, I think that she's going to be unlike Maria Enders. She's going to be fine because she still has. 
she still has so much to give and she doesn't have that neuroses that will actually kind of like drag her down. And, you know, she's someone who is still a really bankable star who can actually take a European film and just by being in it, people will actually go see it. Right. Well, there's a piece about this on Slate actually right now about the the, the long-lived career of Juliette Binoche and why it is that she's going to manage to keep on rolling past her, her ingenue years. And it seems in part because she is really a muse for all kinds of great auteurs. Yeah. I mean, she's very kind of open about, you know, art cinema and creating that. But she also will do, you know, blockbuster cinema or silly little, you know, European films or something like that. Like, when she like and Brian Cranston disappeared from Godzilla, I felt like it lost <laughs> all of its joy. I mean, that was they were so, so great as a couple at the beginning of that. I mean, maybe it was just that, you know, we like them so much from other projects that we're imagining their backstory. But yeah, I, I wouldn't mind seeing her pop up in more blockbusters. There's no actor I was, would be sadder to lose in a film and to be would be Julia Binoche. And so when she leaves Godzilla, it's so heartbreaking, like more than any other actor had been in that role. So that's uh, one of the reasons I actually like Godzilla is because she actually leaves because it's so traumatic when she dies. <laughs> so at least it wasn't her that disappeared in the in the Swiss Alps. At least it was it was Kristen Stewart. You wouldn't be able to take it if it was Juliet going on a walkabout. Um, yeah, <laughs> I suppose so. If it was just Kristen Stewart for the rest of the movie, that would be very sad. But <laughs> although she, again, she's very good in this. So well, I'm excited to see what they both do next, and I liked this a lot more than I expected to. And I do I do really recommend it to people. And I that en- enigmatic quality where you walk out not quite knowing what the ending was supposed to be or what happened to everyone is is a little bit part of the ambiguity that. I like. Yeah, I'm really excited to see how actually mainstream audiences who are not familiar with SAS's uh, work will actually see it, and especially interested to see how the Kristen Stewart fan base, who is quite rabid to say the least, uh, will actually kind of enjoy this film or not. Well, Matt, thanks so much for coming in to spoil, and please come back and do another spoiler with me soon. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Our producer is Joel Meyer. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is also Joel Meyer, and the executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. I'm Gretchen Rubin. On this week's episode of Happier, my sister Elizabeth and I discuss why you should sometimes treat yourself like you treat a toddler, how to work on a good habit when your partner isn't into it, and much more. You'll find Happier at iTunes.com slash Panoply or at Panoply.fm. Panoply.fm.